Well, we're continuing this week the narrative of Ahab, uh, but whereas last week Elijah took a bit of a back seat in the story, uh, he will reappear today to pronounce the Lord's judgment on this wicked king. And you'll recall that we've been seeing what can happen to the people of God in a syncretistic age. That is, an age that is marked by the blending of true and false Worship. And last week we looked at the allure of power uh, and political expedience that evoked God's anger against Ahab and his family. And this week we'll read an episode that puts front and center for us the kind of moral compromise that can take place when God's people descend into syncretism. Now, just a word of warning to you parents and you young worshipers, this is a This is one of those stories in Scripture that's a bit PG-13. It's a violent story. It's about the gruesome murder of an innocent man. But even as I was preparing that to tell you that this week, I'm reminded that at the center of our faith, at the very heart of it, is the murder of an innocent man. So I just want to let you all know that ahead of time. But young worshipers, as we read the text this morning, here's what I want you to to pick out, and you can write this down in your work for young worshipers. What kind of garden does Ahab want to plant next to his palace? Can you listen for that and pick it out as we read? So now you may stand for the reading of God's word from 1 Kings chapter 21. Now Naboth the Jezreelite had a vineyard in Jezreel beside the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. And after this, Ahab said to Naboth, Give me your vineyard, that I may have it for a vegetable garden, because it is near my house, and I will give you a better vineyard for it. Or if it seems good to you, I will give you its value in money. But Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my father's. And Ahab went into his house vexed and sullen because of what Naboth the Jezreelite had said to him, for he had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down on his bed and turned away his face and would eat no food. But Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said to him, why is your spirit so vexed that you eat no food? And he said to her, because I spoke to Naboth the Jezreelite and said to him, give me your vineyard for money. Or else, if it please you, I'll give you another vineyard for it. And he answered, I will not give you my vineyard. And Jezebel, his wife, said to him, Do you now govern Israel? Arise and eat bread and let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal. And she sent the letters to the elders and the leaders who lived with Naboth in his city. And she wrote in the letters, Proclaim a fast, and set Naboth at the head of the people, and set two worthless men opposite him, and let them bring a charge against him, saying, You have cursed God and the king. Then take him out and stone him to death. And the men of the city, the elders and the leaders who lived in his city, did as Jezebel had sent word to them. As it was written in the letters that she had sent to them, they proclaimed a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people, And the two worthless men came in and sat opposite him. 
And the worthless men brought a charge against Naboth in the presence of the people, saying, Naboth cursed God and the king. So they took him outside the city and stoned him to death with stones. Then they sent, Jezebel, sent to Jezebel, saying, Naboth has been stoned, he is dead. As soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money, for Naboth is not alive but dead. And as soon as Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, Ahab arose to go down to the vineyard that Naboth the Jezreelite and took possession of it. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Arise, Go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who is in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone to take possession. And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, Have you killed and also taken possession? And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, In the place where dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, shall dogs lick your own blood. Ahab said to Elijah, Have you found me, O my enemy? He answered, I have found you. Because you have sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, I will bring disaster upon you. I will utterly burn you up and will cut off from Ahab every male bonder free in Israel. And I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Basha, the son of Ahijah. For the anger to which you have provoked me and because you have made Israel to sin... And of Jezebel, the Lord also said, The dogs shall eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel. Anyone belonging to Ahab who dies in the city, the dogs shall eat. And anyone of his who dies in the open country, the birds of the heavens shall eat. There was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab, whom Jezebel, his wife, incited. He acted very abominably in going after idols, as the Amorites had done whom the Lord cast out before the people of Israel. And when Ahab heard those words, he tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his flesh and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about dejectedly. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Have you seen how Ahab humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the disaster in his days. But in his son's days, I will bring disaster upon his house. All flesh is like grass, and its glory like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flower fades, but these words of our God stand forever. Let's pray. O Lord, you have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently, and your commands are not burdensome. Grant that we may be steadfast in keeping them, and that we may praise you with an upright heart. Reform us through the hearing of your word this morning. Amen. Would you be seated? So the Dallas skyline has long been a beloved distinctive of our city. And it illuminates, of course, the sky with the icons of our city's successes. But... Again, our skyline is an area where the origin stories of Dallas can be a bit obscured by all the bright lights and the tall towers. If you were a Dallasite from 1908 to 1910, 
you would have been familiar with the Elks Arch in downtown Dallas. It was a structure created in anticipation of the Elks National Convention, and it stood at the intersection of Maine and Ackerd to welcome some 40,000 visitors to what would be called the biggest barbecue the world has ever seen. Now, praise God, that was in Texas, right? But after this event, the arch remained. It was a staple of our skyline and a monument to the city's growing reputation around the country. But just two years after it was completed, the arch would become the site of one of the most horrific killings in our city's history. It was the site for the lynching of Alan Brooks, an African-American handyman who was accused and arrested, really without evidence, and awaiting trial for the assault of a young girl. And I won't go into all the gruesome details, and they are gruesome, but it's important to know a few things. Alan Brooks was awaiting trial, and at his arraignment, his lawyer was asking for uh, more time to secure witnesses, something that was well within his legal rights to request. But meanwhile, a mob was gathering outside of the old red courthouse downtown. And when the mob heard that the trial might be slightly delayed or stalled, they burst into the courthouse and they killed Mr. Brooks and they paraded his body around downtown. And he was finally hung from the Elks Arch while crowds of thousands, men, women, and children, looked on. Later that year, the arch was removed, but the Dallas Street Commissioner cited bad wiring and the need to add a new storm sewer as the reasons for its removal. And for decades, there stood no memorial, nothing to really tell the story of this heinous crime And if you visit that corner today, the corner of Maine and Ackerd, you can find a plaque that tells the story of Alan Brooks's murder. And it's an important marker because it reminds us that it was not that long ago that those involved in the syncretism, the false worship that accompanies ideologies like white supremacy were able to incite a mob to participate in and celebrate the barbarous murder of a man made in the image of God? How does a people's conscience become so seared that such atrocities are not only allowed, but celebrated? Well, Dr. King noted in his letter from a Birmingham jail that he saw this kind of moral decay firsthand, and it stemmed from false doctrine and false worship. He said, I have watched so many churches commit themselves to a completely otherworldly religion which made a strange distinction between body and soul, the sacred and the secular. And he is reminding us that false worship and false doctrine will always lead to moral compromise. And while it may start with your run-of-the-mill moral slippage, its aim, its end result is always atrocities like this that tear at the very fabric of life. This was true no less for God's people in Elijah's day, that as the nation of Israel descended further and further and further into syncretism and idolatry, their cultural conscience 
and especially that of their leaders, became seared to the point of murder and exploitation and twisting the word of God to give approval to those things. The account of Naboth's vineyard in Scripture is no less an injustice than Alan Brooks's story, and it was no less incited by false worship in Israel because syncretism requires moral compromise. But the good news of the gospel is that divine justice and divine mercy are always upheld by the sovereign hand of the Lord. The narrative of the life and reign of Ahab in 1 Kings has been leading us to this point. Recall that syncretism, a blending of false worship with genuine religion, was introduced by Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, when the kingdom split, but that Ahab had taken things to a whole new level in Israel. He was corrupted by power and by political alliance with idol worshipers, and especially by his marriage to Jezebel, who really is uh, the, the prime mover in today's story. In fact, you begin to see in this narrative just how much her way of thinking and her worldview and her way of life has shaped the events in Ahab's life and how syncretism works its way out into this downward spiral that leads to the end of Ahab's line. And you begin to see how Ahab's syncretism doesn't merely corrupt himself and his household, but works its way out into the cultural fabric so that the leaders of the community give approbation to the oppression of the innocent. So you'll recall that Ahab had a palace in Jezreel, and on this occasion he's he's reclining at his palace and he's probably looking out the window on a cool morning And he looks out and he sees this beautiful vineyard adjacent to his palace and he covets it. By the way, this story should certainly remind us of another king who looked out from his palace and saw something beautiful and coveted it. But he he covets this vineyard and he makes an offer to Naboth, the vineyard owner. And it's actually a pretty generous offer. He says, hey, I'll give you an even better vineyard or I'll pay fair market value. You, you pick. Now, why did Ahab want this particular vineyard? Well, it was customary for kings in those days to have beautiful gardens adjacent to their palaces to provide shade and vegetation and beauty. It was a, it was a mark of royalty and leisure. So Ahab wants this garden, but there's a problem of ownership Land ownership in the promised land for ancient Israel was a radically different thing than the nations around them. In fact, just about any other nation you go to, the king says, "Um, hey, I want that land, give it to me, right? But in ancient Israel, the Lord had allotted land to each family during the conquest after the exodus. It was land owned by Yahweh, and he distributed it as he saw fit, and really, Ownership couldn't be permanently transferred. It could be leased for a time, but the Lord himself had made provisions that that if a family had to lease their land, that they could eventually uh, be returned to ownership. But But the Lord owned it all, and he gave to each one as he saw fit. And... What's more, to sell one's land, to to release ownership, was to cut off one's descendants 
from the blessings of God's covenant. And Ahab knew this. That's why he went away sad. He goes away sulking. But enter Jezebel. And it's so important to see what she's saying here. Look back at verse 5. Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said, Why is your spirit so vexed that you eat no food? And he said to her, Because I spoke with Naboth the Jezreelite and said to him, Give me your vineyard for money, or else, if it please you, I'll give you another vineyard for it. And he answered, I will not give you my vineyard. And Jezebel, his wife, said to him, Do you not now govern Israel? Arise and eat bread and let your heart be cheerful, and I will give you the vineyard of Naboth. So you see, she says, wait, wait, wait. Why are you sulking? You're the king. And where I come from, the king gets what the king wants. That's his divine right. And then she says, get up, eat something. I'm going to take care of this. So we have to understand what's happening here. Jezebel is reminding Ahab that according to Canaanite tradition and religion, no one questions the king. And so whereas Ahab understands that he ought not to forcibly take this land from Naboth, Jezebel said, hold on, you let me take care of this. She goes on to enact a wicked and oppressive plot that ends in Naboth's murder, with Ahab either approving or turning a blind eye. You notice what's happening with Jezebel. What's her starting point? It's not... God and his authority and his covenant and the king as his under-shepherd, but rather it's the right of kings to oppress and assert their will on anyone or anything in their kingdoms. So there's, a, there's this impulse that she has. That's her starting point. You know, today there's a renewed focus on the powers of a monarch, given recent events across the pond. And I bet many of you have done what I did When I learned about the queen's death and the king's ascension to the throne, what do we do? We Googled, what actually can the king do, right? Um, Of course, the United Kingdom is a constitutional monarchy, which means that lawmaking powers reside with the parliament. But the king of England does have some interesting symbolic powers that remain a part of the nation's cultural fabric and tradition The king can, of course, bestow knighthood. He can decide on the royal menu. He can give approval to royal marriage proposals. And this is my favorite one. The king of England has the right to claim any unmarked swans swimming in open water in the the entire nation to claim them as his own. So that's a pretty cool power. But the point is this, the king's authority is subject to something greater, to the Constitution. Just as Ahab's authority was subject to Yahweh in his Constitution, the Mosaic Covenant. But Jezebel says, no, 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 where I come from, the king gets what he wants. And this leads to the oppression and murder of an innocent man. Now look, I don't, I don't have to convince you, I hope, that this is a biblical theme, that when God's people descend into syncretism and idolatry, the innocent and vulnerable end up oppressed. 
You know that God's heart for the vulnerable and the oppressed and the innocent floods the page, pages of Scripture, and especially in the prophets who are calling God's people back to covenant faithfulness and away from syncretism, which includes ceasing their oppression of the innocent. But it's so easy, isn't it, to look back at ancient Israel and to go, yeah, of course, we know that God's law had provision to care for the vulnerable, and, and we know that they were often still oppressed But the question before us today is, nevertheless, where do the idols of our culture drive us to oppress the innocent? Is it racial or socioeconomic injustice or political persecution? Or how about cancel culture? I've said this before. I think cancel culture is one of the most oppressive outworkings of secular religion in our day. There is no grace, no nuance, no empathy or understanding, no justice in the court of public opinion. There are any number of ways that our culture's idols cause the oppression of the innocent. So I'm not picking on any particular way, but whatever it is, realize this, syncretism always moves us toward oppression an exploitation of those made in the image of God. And it's something that the Lord calls his people to oppose. But one of the primary reasons that syncretism drives us to such evil practices is that it also warps our convictions. Jezebel's plot is one of the most seditious episodes in Scripture because if you read it carefully, you'll see that She's breaking just about every Mosaic instructions for the king of Israel. The whole time, though, she's keeping up this charade of following the law. So she writes a letter in Ahab's name, either with his approval or while he turns a blind eye, and she enacts a plot to frame Naboth according to the law. So she gathers some corrupt leaders, and, and, and she knows that they know the law of God, but they've been so warped by syncretism and idolatry that they're ready to go along with her plot. And she says, okay, we're going we're gonna to accuse Naboth of blasphemy, which according to the Mosaic law is punishable by death. But here's the thing. All of her boxes are checked. She gets two wicked men to serve as witnesses, and that was required in the Mosaic Law. Don't bring a charge except on the evidence of two witnesses. So, so then she calls an assembly together to fast for Naboth's grievous sin, and she sets up a kangaroo court, and Naboth is convicted before an angry mob, and he's even taken outside the city to be stoned. Now that fact alone is, is pretty ironic, because Naboth's murderers enjoy the, the, the fruits of uh, ritual purity by taking him outside the city to murder him, right? But look what happens next. She tells Ahab in verse 15, Arise and go take possession of Naboth's vineyard because he is dead. Now, why is it okay for Ahab to now go and take possession of Naboth's land. Because if you're convicted of blasphemy and put to death, the deed transfers to the king. So, 
Jezebel has enacted this whole charade so that Ahab could legally obtain Naboth's land. She's followed the law to a T, all the while murdering an innocent man. And the leaders of Israel, these wicked witnesses and the king of Israel, they all went along with it. Why? Because syncretism warps our convictions. If you're a longtime PCA person, I don't have to convince you of this, because it was not that long ago, 1973, that our denomination was formed after decades of pushing back against syncretism in liberal Christianity. At the turn of the 20th century, Presbyterians in America, it, it, we found ourselves mired in debates about many of the fundamental tenets of the faith. And understand what I'm saying. I'm, I'm not talking about the particular tenets of Presbyterianism. No, I'm talking about the fundamental tenets of the Christian faith. Things like the inerrancy of Scripture and the deity of Christ, the bodily resurrection. But how did this happen? By alignment with the culture's gods, of course. It's the same way it happened in Jesus' day. Do you realize how profound it is that when the chief priests are before Pilate, the Roman governor, in order to help make the charge against Jesus, the blasphemy charge, stick, they tell Pilate, hey, if you release this guy, you're opposing Caesar because Caesar's the only true king. And then later, Pilate takes Jesus out before the crowd and says, behold your king. And what do the Jews say? We have no king but Caesar. Are you kidding me? In Rome, Caesar was divine. So you hear, you have God's own people swearing allegiance to another God in order to put this innocent man to death that's troubling them. This is nothing new. Syncretism warps our convictions as it did for Ahab and Jezebel. And it can even cause us to twist the very word of God to our own ends. Why does it have such power over us? Because syncretism also changes our affections. Yet, as we will see in this story, it, it also provides the backdrop for God to do an even more powerful work on our affections. Clearly, Ahab's affections have long been set on things other than the kingdom of God. This is why he makes a marriage alliance with Jezebel. It's why he makes a sinful covenant with Syria it's why he's even called in this passage abominable, the most wicked king that Israel had ever seen. And so it's no surprise at the outset of this account that we read today that we find his affections set on himself. He covets that vineyard. He wants it. And when he can't have it, he's so sullen that he goes home and lays down on his bed and pouts and he can't even eat anything. And it's... No surprise that Ahab is involved in this wicked and oppressive plot of Jezebel, either actively or passively, because we know where his affections lie. Power and self-love. But what happens at the end of this story is shocking. And honestly, downright offensive. So Elijah comes back into the narrative and... He's going to convict Ahab of sin. The word of the Lord comes to his prophet 
And he's sent to proclaim God's judgment on Ahab and Jezebel once again. In fact, it's a gruesome judgment. God is going to cut off Ahab's house like he did Jeroboam and Basha. And just like these other notoriously wicked kings, dogs are going to eat the flesh or drink the blood after he dies a horrific death. And the last time such a judgment was proclaimed against Ahab, he goes home pouting. But look how he responds this time. Verse 27. And when Ahab heard those words, he tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his flesh and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about dejectedly. dejectedly. So, for the first time in the story, we see Ahab demonstrating at least some measure of repentance. He tears his clothes and he humbles himself. And, lest we think that the repentance he's demonstrating is false, the Lord himself seals its authenticity, telling Elijah, I'm going to delay this judgment and not bring it about in Ahab's day, but instead in his son's day. It's it's remarkable that Ahab repents here. It's also offensive, isn't it? You could be tempted just to write it off by saying, look, this is is just false repentance, but, 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 but... I mean, in the next chapter, he's right back to spurning the word of the Lord, and eventually he does die in battle. So a lot of ink has been spilt by commentators trying to explain this. What's going on here? Is Ahab's repentance real? I'll admit to you guys, I I wrestled with this all week. And I'm not sure how to reconcile it, but it is real. It's certainly not final because he ultimately does spurn the word of the Lord. But is it genuine? Well, the Lord himself looks upon Ahab and says for the first time, he's humbled himself. Apparently, in this case, the word of judgment proclaimed by God's prophet is effective to change Ahab's heart in some measure. Even though his story ends just like the Lord foretells with the dogs licking up his blood in the very next chapter. Now, I don't know if this radical display of God's mercy offends you, but it certainly offends me. Didn't we just read last week that the lamp of the wicked will be put out? But here's the point. Divine justice and divine mercy are always upheld by the sovereign hand of the Lord. So that it is his prerogative to delay his judgment in Ahab's case and offer him the gifts of repentance and mercy. It certainly doesn't fit into my categories. Look, Ahab and Jezebel are supposed to be the paradigmatic uh, examples of evil. And then you have Elijah and Elisha. They're supposed to be the Christ figures in the story. So this doesn't fit With my categories, they're supposed to die in judgment because they oppressed and murdered the innocent. So this little vignette makes no sense until we realize that the Lord will have mercy on whom he has mercy. And he will have compassion on whom he has compassion. And until we realize that divine justice is not compromised by divine mercy. What do I mean by that? What I mean is that God maintains his perfect justice even as he freely gives out mercy to wicked sinners. And this is one of the most important things about Christianity. In other religions, if there is divine mercy, it's sort of just given out on a, 
on a whim. It's not really backed by anything. It's just the gods are at their, they kind of dispense it at their whims with no real purpose. But scripture tells us that God upholds his perfect justice in granting mercy to sinners. How? How can that be true if God is just and if the wicked don't get what they deserve? Well, it's because in Christ Jesus, in his death, God is both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in him. Now, here's how that works. Jesus Christ was an innocent man, son of God, come to earth to live a perfect life and to fulfill the law like no one else could. And yet, he was falsely accused He was put to death, just like Naboth, unjustly murdered outside the city gate because those who framed him twisted the word of the Lord to to maintain their own ritual purity, all the while selling out to the culture's gods. And they set him up in a kangaroo court and he was mocked and beaten and they forced him to carry the murder weapon outside of the city where he would be Uh, killed between two convicted criminals and one of them would cry out to him even at the hour of his death for mercy. And then Jesus Christ, the Lord of life, committed himself to death in the place of sinners, taking on himself the sins of those who would believe in him for all time so that God maintains his perfect justice And he secured for them in his righteousness the mercy that would be freely given to those through faith in his name so that God upholds his sovereign mercy without compromising that divine justice. The death of Christ in your place is the way that God upholds his perfect justice by punishing his innocent son and dispensing his free mercy. And it's a kind of mercy that could be very offensive. But it's the kind of mercy that changes our affections. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray, I woke, the dungeon flamed with light, my chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? I pray that you and I would know that love all the more deeply today. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we give you... Thanks and praise that even in something as heinous as the death of the innocent, your mercy is on display and your justice is not compromised. We thank you that Jesus Christ, though he was innocent, went to the cross for wicked sinners like us and that by faith in his name, he gives to us his righteousness and takes upon himself our sinfulness and makes us new creatures, changes our hearts, changes our affections. May the good news of your gospel motivate us today as we leave this place in Jesus' name. Amen.